Gracious God, this time together we give to you. We, uh, we uh, pray that um, your spirit is upon us and that as you use broken instruments, we pray that your spirit would envelop our words and our thoughts, that the gospel message will be heard, the good news. We pray this in your son's precious name. Amen. Okay, I have newfound respect for Shane and John because of these microphones. So I'll do my best, but if I forget to turn it on, just signal, let me know, and I'll uh, uh, do what I can to make sure I am heard. Um, we thought, John and I met on Friday, and uh, we had met before, and we, we have been planning this really since the fall, but we sort of went on Friday and, and met for lunch and tried to nail everything down, put it in final form for how we hope it winds up today. And we thought that it would be a good idea to talk first just a little bit about where the screw tape letters fit in, in terms of the body of work by C.S. Lewis. And I think it was about four, four and a half years ago, we spent part of a summer looking through mere Christianity and working through that. I think some of you were there for that. And I really don't think you can separate these two books. I think it helps to read them both at some point and read them close together. And to get ready for what we're doing, I actually uh, reread uh, big parts, big chunks of Mere Christianity because Mere Christianity really lays out C.S. Lewis's big picture, his big view of uh, uh, world history and the cosmos and uh, where we fit into it. And then the screw tape letters narrows the lens. It focuses on specifically one aspect of God's creation, and that is us uh, and our frailties and our flaws and our weaknesses. And so I think it helps to, to read both of these. It's not absolutely indispensable. Uh, it's not like you have to uh, read mere Christianity as a prerequisite or anything along those lines, but I just I recommend it. I think it'll make your reading of Screwtape more meaningful long term. Uh, the Screwtape letters were published as a series of weekly columns uh, during a very critical period uh, in, in 20th century uh, British history uh, from May to November of 1941. Uh, is when they were published. And they were published in the Church of England version of the Wesleyan Advocate. Uh, it was the denominational newspaper for the Church of England, or a magazine, actually, I think was the format then. And you really have to ask yourself, when you're looking at screw tape and the references to the war, there's a reference early on to a newsboy uh, and how the headline on the newspaper would have uh, knocked a new Christian uh, off of uh, his balance. Uh, you have to ask what was happening then. And um, another book I'll commend to you is, is, I'll get to it in just a moment, but sort of sketching the scene and laying the uh, groundwork of what was happening and what the world was, what was going on in C.S. Lewis's world. Uh, it's a book by Eric Larson, came out about three or four years ago, called The Splendid and the Vile. And it's from May of 1940 to May of 1941, the Battle of Britain. Okay, Britain was under attack from Hitler and the Nazis uh, at the time Screwtape was shaping up. And I think it's very hard to uh, uh, read it and not ask what was going on in the world uh, around C.S. Lewis uh, at that time. 
Uh, mere Christianity uh, did come later than screw tape. Mere Christianity was written once the war got fully underway between 1941 and 1944. It was published as a, it originally appeared as a series of lectures on the BBC, British Broadcasting Corporation. C.S. Lewis anticipated even then that Britain was headed in the direction of a post-Christian future. And so he was making the case for Christianity with uh, mere Christianity. But um, uh, at any rate, uh, I think it's helpful to read these two together. Uh, I'm going to put my English degree to good use uh, just very quickly. I'll tell you that screw tape letters is written in a form that is sometimes called epistolary. Uh, it's written as a series of letters, as you have probably picked up on already. Uh, I got to looking and I was thinking about what other books in British literature are epistolary, and there are two that come to mind, uh, neither of which really fits in too well with the screw tape letters. And one is Bram Stoker's Dracula, and the other is Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. So where that leaves us, I don't know. Well, maybe but, there is some, if you look a little deeper there. Yeah. Well, and I was thinking about that. That may be a good way to expose evil uh, is through that particular format. But I think Lewis chose it because the screw tape letters, he likes to engage the reader, as you may have observed. And the epistolary form forces the reader to fill in the blanks. You may notice that you only have one set of letters here. Okay, there's a responding letter and then the letter from uh, uh, screw tape is there and you have to kind of fill in the blanks of what is going on between these letters. So uh, the epistolary form is more engaging. It uh, uh, engages the reader. It forces the reader to do a good deal of work. But um, uh, nevertheless, I think it's a very effective format uh, that Lewis chose here. And to the best of my knowledge, it's really the only, this is one of the few 20th century novels uh, that uh, follows that format. Uh, and it is a novel, it has characters, it has a plot. Uh, the characters are very fully developed. There is no literal screw tape, no literal wormwood, no literal glubose. But uh, nevertheless, it, it presents a very powerful narrative of who we are, what our weaknesses are. Uh, and it points to the existence uh, of uh, absolute morality, absolute good, absolute evil. Uh, and absolute evil is not a concept in the screw tape letters. Absolute evil is personified by uh, that being who is described as our father or our father below, who we would recognize as Lucifer or Satan. And I suppose this is as good an opportunity as any to proceed into the reality of evil uh, in, in these works. Do you have anything you want to add at this point? No, you got it. Okay. Well... No pressure, I'll just uh, I'll keep on. Um, I want you to think back with me for just a moment to mere Christianity, uh, where uh, C.S. Lewis makes the case first in book one of mere Christianity for the existence of God. And again, he's writing to a skeptical nation. And then he makes the case for the Christian worldview, the great doctrines of the Christian faith. And then at the end of, uh, I think it is the first book, he sketches out a view of earth as occupied territory, 
Now remember, World War II is going on. You have occupied France, occupied Holland, occupied Belgium. Much of, of Europe is occupied at that point. Hitler very much wants to make England occupied territory too, but the British took a different view on that and fought back. Uh, but at any rate, uh, Lewis makes the case that the world where we live is occupied territory, that God's great good creation has been invaded uh, and that it has been invaded by Lucifer uh, and the forces of evil. Uh, and where does that leave us as Christians? We're like the underground. We're like the ones communicating on the radio uh, secretly uh, uh, fighting uh, against and resisting the overtures of evil. So he closes chapter two of uh, his second book of Mere Christianity, where he makes out the case for the Christian gospel. He says, I know someone will ask me, do you really mean at this time of day to reintroduce our old friend the devil, hooves and horns and all, well, what the time of day has to do with it, I do not know. And I am not particular about the hooves and the horns. But in other respects, my answer is, yes, I do. I do not claim to know anything about his personal appearance. If anybody really wants to know him better, I would say to that person, don't worry. If you really want to, you will. Whether you'll like it when you do is another question. So... At any rate, I think that it's important to realize that C.S. Lewis's worldview is the historic Christian worldview. And that's that uh, in this book, although the characters are fictional, the evil that they personify is very real. And uh, our father, the devil who they are serving, is in fact very, very real. Um, anything that you want to interject at this point? You got it. Okay. So... I, he's, you know, I, I appreciate the support. Thanks. But uh, John and I did think it would be useful to begin this, and we started talking about this in the fall, to focus on Satan because you have to understand who he is. He understands us very well, and we need to understand scriptural treatment of him. Uh, if you look, are we going to move along to um, Ephesians 6, 12? Okay. Scripture gives us a lot of pictures of Satan. Um, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the po cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So you see very much a very clear picture of Satan emerging in the New Testament. Um, I would say that uh, he is also identified in Ephesians 2, 2 as the prince of the power of the air. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he is described as the God of this world. Um, he actually, according to scripture, and I've kind of summarized some of this, but you see both of these coming out in screw tape. He has two major roles at this point. One is to keep the lost lost. Um, the second is to rob believers of spiritual blessings and spiritual growth. So he's working on both ends of the what I call the conversion continuum. He wants the unconverted to remain exactly that way. He wants the converted not to realize the benefits of being converted. Uh, Jesus describes Satan in John 8 as a murderer from the beginning 
He said there was no truth in him. He's a liar. He's the father of lies. And so it's important to remember that this evil that Lewis is describing is not a cartoon. No hooves, no pitchforks, no red capes, uh, but real. Uh, that the devil is a genuine being, uh, not a concept. And that screw tape is really about how this real devil, acting through real demons, attacks us, especially at the low points of life, sometimes at the high points. And John is getting ready to tell us about one of the low points in this cycle of life uh, that uh, C.S. Lewis identifies. John. Yeah, this, this, I tell you, this is a, a topic that usually, if Christians are in their right mind, they want to push back against. A devil? Satan? Evil? Because it brings up so many different questions in, in that. And I'm going to tell you, if this is one of your questions and stuff, that we're not going to be tackling this uh, concept or whatnot in, in our discussion together. Um, but we're going to kind of look and, and we're going to take the scriptures as, as what they say and, and kind of lean into, if this is the case, then what are the ways that um, Satan uh, and the demons and will want to actually dissuade us from becoming a Christian or kind of see it as, a, um, as something that is light. It's not really light, earth shattering. It's not very big in the change. And, and in letters eight and nine, I want to talk about one of these areas. Letters eight and nine, um, Wormwood, the nephew, um, must have written back uh, a response about saying how excited he was that his patient was now becoming um, less and less of a Christian was kind of turning, a, 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 he wasn't as excited. And, and screw tape in letters eight and nine is he's writing back to them in, in a way to make them feel, make, to kind of correct him in saying that, um, you know what, don't get too enthusiastic about this. Um, this, this, is, this is something that can be very dangerous for our cause if, if we let it go unchecked and we kind of take our hands off and say, this patient is at a place where there is ultimate vulnerability and they're lost and they're on the dark path and whatnot and we don't have to worry about it. And Screwtape is kind of saying, listen, let's, let's not get to that point yet. And, um, and Wormwood's hopes that the, re the patient's religion is, is just been a phase and now he's in a phase where it's kind of dying off. Screwtape actually writes back and says, this is something that you shouldn't really um, uh, celebrate. And he says, uh, he uses what uh, he calls the spiritual law of undulation um, to make his argument. And this is the spiritual law of undulation. What he says here is uh, the spiritual law of undulation are the ups and the downs that, are, uh, that humans experience in any endeavor. In the Christian world, we might call this the mountaintops and the valleys. Y'all, have you, have you, when I say mountaintop experience, do you all know what I'm talking about? When it comes to your faith, it's those moments where you feel that God is real, that, 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 that you are moved, that you've made decisions, that you are vulnerable, your spirit is vulnerable to lean into a self-denial, a submission of, of your life and of your wants and your desires, and, and you want to become more Christ-like. That would be a mountaintop experience. And think of one of those that you might have had. 
Uh, a, a bottom or a valley might have been those times where you felt distant, where you might feel that God has forgotten you, where God has left you, where God is inexplicably silent. And do you know those? Have you experienced those moments in uh, your life? And any time that any person has ever spent um, uh, any time in his life or her life, there have been ups and there have been downs in just about every single uh, experience, even outside of our spiritual uh, situations and stuff like that. And he might say, if you had watched your, spa- uh, your patient carefully, you would see, uh, Screwtape says, that this undulation is evident in every part of their lives. His interests at work, how many people have interests at work that are sometimes you're like, right spot on. And other times you're like, oh my goodness, I can't get out of here fast enough. Now, if your boss is next to you, don't say anything. It's okay. All right. How about in, in uh, affections or in your friendships? How about uh, in your physical appetites? How about, uh, they, they all go up and they all go down. And, and Wormwood wants to take credit in this down period, this valley, he'll call it a trough. He wants to take credit for these and celebrate them. And, and what um, uh, Screwtape says is that the dryness and the dullness through which your patient is now going are not, as you form or fondly suppose, all because of you. You did not create this trough. You didn't celebrate, you can't celebrate this trough. You didn't make it happen. They are just merely a natural phenomenon which will do us no good in our work, in our desires, unless you make good use of it. Now, let me tell you just a, a smith, um, for a moment, the, uh, the power of undulation when it comes to our spiritual life. Now, you all know this. You know the power. This, let, let me just, let's just lay it out here um, uh, straightforward. If, if humanity, if we are not aware of the natural mountaintops and the natural um, valleys, uh, the ebb and flow, uh, then we will be surprised when we are in a spiritual trough, a spiritual valley, and we won't recognize it as a temporary period. We will think that it is a new reality. In our distant, when we feel distance from God, when we feel we are in a place where God is silent, we will lean into the fact that God has left us and he is not coming back. And where we go is down that natural slippery slope where is, what did I do wrong? What do I have to do more of? As if there is a way that I can manipulate this in my life, that I can actually guide this, but it's just natural because of our spirits, because of what we do, because of how we're wired. There are these natural flows, natural ebb and flows that go on inside of us. And we will, be, we will believe in our spiritual life that the trough is a new normal. And two things happen when we think this is a new normal. The first thing that happens is that it casts a shadow backwards over our spiritual past. When you think that this is a new normal, 
what happens is, is you start to believe that the, that the spiritual past was merely emotionalism, was not something that was real. When I came to Jesus or when I gave my life to him, when I leaned in, that was, a, that was a mountaintop. But now in this valley, you start to question in this moment. When you believe that the trough is a new normal, you begin to believe that it is just, uh, maybe the past is not something that really happened. Not only that is, is that it casts a shadow forward over your spiritual potential. So in the present, if you feel in this moment that you have, um, uh, uh, you're in a trough, you're in a valley, and you are listening to the lie that it is a new normal, then these two things happen. You will redefine, you will rewrite history about the past and you will see that your spiritual relationship, your relationship with God has no power for the future. Do you see how powerful that is? In our, in our mission of, of St. Paul, we want to make and grow disciples. And two ways that we do this is we believe that God is who he says he is. And he will do what he promises to do. Do you see in a spiritual trough how that can cancel out both of those? That you no longer believe that God is who he says he is. And you no longer believe that God will do what he promises to do. So Screwtape tells Wormwood that it's best if the patient has no notion that this trough period is normal. If the patient believes that it is a new reality, it will put him on his back and it will wreak, wreak havoc on his spiritual past, his present, and future. And so what he does, Screwtape says, exploit it. Dig in deeper. Warn him not to count a win too early, but to lean into this idea that it can be used to our favor when you actually tell him it will not end. It will go on forever. There is no ebb and flow. There is no more highs and lows. But if you can convince the patient that this is a new normal, then you got them. You got your hooks in them. So the goal is to make sure that Wormwood has, has uh, his, his patient has no idea that, that the, of the law of undulation. And, and you want to convince him that this, this idea of the trough is, is uh, normal and that the hardest part of any suffering is the feeling that it will last forever. That it, and that's what often makes it unbearable. But if we know that it's just for a season, then we'll be more able to realize that in the darkness, there will be light. At night, there will be a dawn. And when there is a bad day or a bad week or a bad year, it doesn't mean a bad life. It doesn't mean a bad life at all. And what's interesting is that, that screw tape actually says the troughs 
the troughs are something that the enemy, our, our God, that God uses as a tool. Uh, let me see if I can find this here. This is now, uh, he says, now it may surprise you. It may surprise you to learn that in his efforts to get permanent possession of a soul, he relies on the troughs even more than on the peaks. Some of his special favorites have gone through longer and deeper troughs than anyone else. Jeremiah, Jonah, Daniel sometimes, Peter, the troughs that they have gone through. How about the people of Israel going through the wilderness for 40 years? Slavery, yes. The, the, the tension here is that, that God seems hidden. And when we ask, why didn't God show up for the world? Or more specifically, why didn't God show up for me? Why doesn't God reveal himself to me? If he did reveal himself to you, it would be considered coercion. Now, he does show up in, in many ways, and he is, his presence is there. But what Screwtape tells uh, Wormwood is, is that, um, uh, that love does not germinate in coercion. It grows in troughs. It, it, it's, it's because that in the moments where we seek God, not for what he can do, but because of who he is, it's in these moments that our love for God begins to really grow, where we begin to see it as a trough. And, and, and really, what, what Screwtape, how he ends one of his letters, either eight or nine, is he comes to this place where he says, do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is, uh, ne is, is, is never more in danger than when a human no longer desiring, but still intending to do the will of our enemy, looks around upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has forsake, been forsaken and still obeys. This, this is what wreaks havoc in the spiritual realm. So there's, there's places in Scripture that we see this actually unfolding, right? Absolutely. Your microphone. Yeah. We'll teach this judge how to get it right. These would be really dangerous in a courtroom, which is, <laughs> which is why we do not use them in a courtroom. But I think that it's important to understand that this law of undulation is a part of the natural law. Anybody else wear a Fitbit? Okay, it can measure the patterns of your sleep. There are cycles, and C.S. Lewis points this out elsewhere, that run all through nature. Phases of the moon, look at the calendar. You have the seasons. Uh, you have storms going through perfectly predictable patterns. Photosynthesis, uh, this, this cycle and the cyclical nature of, of the world and God's good creation is also baked into our spiritual beings because he made us that way. C.S. Lewis says right here uh, when he's introducing the undulation principle that part of, of making us mortal beings is that we tend to go through cycles. Uh, we're not eternal and fixed in our nature. We move from one position to the next and then we circle back around. 
There's a great line from Emerson where he says, line in nature is not found, unit and universe are round. So uh, there's, there's this cyclical aspect to our spiritual natures as well. And uh, that's, that's what um, uh, Screwtape is, is pointing out to Dear Wormwood is that uh, it's in the troughs where God sometimes does his finest work. And so that's also where the devil and his demons must do their attack and have it the most calibrated and the most targeted. Uh, so I don't know if anybody else picked up on that, but it sort of helped me to think about uh, patterns of, of nature elsewhere because the natural law is such an important part of C.S. Lewis's work. You see it also all the way through mere Christianity. As a matter of fact, just in case you missed the point, there's a whole chapter in here called The Natural Law. But at any rate, uh, it's, uh, uh, it's important to understand that. Um, any, we have time for any comments at this point or questions? Yeah, any questions or, or do you want to I just, dive I know, into your scriptures? Okay. I know we've been talking for a while, but uh, we'll try to reserve a little bit of time at the end for any comments or questions or critiques or whatever you wish to tell us. But if you look at the passage that John just quoted, um, he talks about a human no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will. He looks upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. I was thinking of scriptural applications of that and life applications of that. And one scriptural application that comes to mind is Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, and yet he still follows through on God's great plan of salvation. He still obeys. Uh, another example, though, that I think is a really beautiful word picture of the peaks and the valleys, the hills and the troughs, uh, is in Mark chapter 9 which some of you may recall as the passage where we're told about the transfiguration of Christ. And where does it take place? It takes place on a mountaintop. Uh, so it's, uh, it's right there atop the mountain. And what happens there? Jesus goes to the top of the mountain and he is met by who? Moses and Elijah. So you have this beautiful image on the mountaintop of the law from the great lawgiver Moses and the prophecy from the great prophet Elijah being fulfilled in that single moment in the person of Christ. And they talk to Jesus about what is getting ready to befall him and the path that he must follow. Uh, and uh, it is definitely a mountaintop event. Uh, if there ever happened to be one in Scripture. There are others, the giving of the law at Sinai. Uh, Elijah had some mountaintop events as possible, but they all sort of converge. All of these narratives converge in this part about the transfiguration, where you have Moses and Elijah uh, fulfilled in the work and mission of Christ. Um, so at any rate, we have uh, also, when you're on top of the mountain, unfortunate part about it is you have to go back down in the valley. And so Jesus is literally on a mountaintop, but also spiritually he and his disciples 
two of the disciples are on a mountaintop as well. But they have to go down to the bottom of the valley. Uh, and on the way down, we're told elsewhere in Scripture that the disciples are bickering. They're squabbling back and forth. So uh, the valley comes up on them pretty quickly. Uh, and when they finally get to the foot of the mountain, what do they find? But they find a boy who is possessed by a demon. And a demon much like screw tape, much like wormwood. And you find a father who wants the best for his son, who is terribly worried about his son. And um, you get a little bit of an image of what has happened. Remember, two of the disciples were up on the mountaintop with Jesus. Where were the rest of them? They were down at the bottom of the mountain. And they were dealing with this father and this son. And they were trying to exorcise the demon and they were unsuccessful at doing it. They were trying in their own flesh to do it. Uh, and so Jesus um, comes down. He kind of does what you would expect. Uh, uh, what is going on? And the father says, your disciples, I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. Jesus then reprimands the disciples for their lack of faith. He says, bring the boy to me. And uh, he has a little bit of a colloquy with the father, asks him some questions. And we see that at Mark 9, the father has a request for Jesus. He says, let me go back. He says, this demon has cast my son into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. So we're in the trough at this point. We're no longer on the mountaintop. We're in the trough. Reality has reared up its ugly head, uh, what we sometimes call reality anyway. Uh, and uh, Jesus is back uh, away from the wonderful things going on on the mountaintop. He's back down in this very dry, dusty trough, dealing with a demon, a literal demon. Uh, and Jesus replies to the Father. Remember, the Father says, if you can help. He says, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And um, I was looking this morning. There's one other place where someone begins a conversation with Jesus in the New Testament with if you are who you say you are. And where did that come from? Satan in the wilderness tempting Jesus. So at any rate, this is a very provocative thing. Uh, that says that that is said to Jesus, but Jesus uses it to show who he is. He says, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Uh, and immediately the father responds in a way that is very helpful for us when we find ourselves in that trough. Remember, the trough can be a spiritual trough. You can be kind of uh, sucking fumes in terms of your spirituality. You can be feeling down. You can be even doubting some of your own belief. The father says, I believe, help my unbelief. What an incredibly honest prayer uh, to be said at that time. And a prayer it is because who is the father talking to? Jesus. So we see there that Jesus in turn um, uh, acts and he delivers the boy. Uh, he heals the boy and later he's talking with his disciples and they say, why could we not drive it out? Referring to the demon. And Jesus said, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. 
And so what I see here, and if we could go back to that picture, um, is a beautiful word picture, but it was also captured, and John and I were actually thinking about this same picture at the same time without even knowing about it. Uh, I had just been reading about this picture about a week ago. This was the last great work by Raphael, uh, who was a, a wonderful artist, uh, did much religious art. But Raphael takes Mark 9, this chapter, and he puts it in a single painting with a frame at the top and a frame at the bottom, the mountaintop and the valley. Uh, and at the top, you have the transfiguration in this image. You see Jesus being transfigured. Uh, you see, who is it, John and Peter who were with him uh, atop the mountain. You see John and Peter there. But then if you look at the bottom, you see what was happening at the bottom of the hill as well. Uh, you see the father in green. You see the boy. And what's interesting about this, according to art historians, is the boy's mouth is open. And that indicates, at least in the way it is depicted and in the style of art at the time, that the demon has left him, that he has been healed and delivered of this demon. And then if you look over on the left, you see St. Matthew, because this is also recorded in Matthew uh, holding the, the Bible there. But this is just sort of a beautiful word image of what we've been talking about and how the undulation principle applies uh, in Lewis, uh, how their mountaintops, their valleys, and our response through it all, and our best response is to say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Make up the measure of whatever my deficiencies may be, because he's there and he will. Um, any comments before we talk about where we're going to go next week? Any questions? Don't be shy. Did we get any questions? No, not yet. Okay. Oh, and we're passing out the little note forms like yes. we did with yeah. Christianity. Yeah. All right, well, if you have questions, that would be good, and we will try to get to some of them next week. If you have comments, Mary Sue, you always have a comment. Okay. So All let right. me, let me um, bring this to okay. a close here and kind of zero in with a few action items for you. If, if you want a scripture passage that kind of zeroes in on what's happening, I want you to read Lamentations chapter 3. In Lamentations chapter 3, uh, Jeremiah is talking about all the horrible things that are going on. And then in verse 21, but this thing I remember and this thing that I hope in, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Oh, great is his, his faithfulness. His mercies are new every morning. It is a conscious effort in that split second moment that will help you if you recognize that this is a, a lie of Satan that's trying to get you down to a path where you think that this is a new normal, that this becomes a, a new reality, that you are able to recognize this, then, then you read that passage and it'll help you. This is what Jeremiah did. In other words, what he did is what he looked into are, are these things right here. You commit to three things. When you feel that moment is uh, of undulate, where you're in the trough, when you're in the valley, the first thing is commit now that you will not forget God's love for you. In fact, you choose to believe that God has loved you in the past and in the present. Commit now at that moment that you will not forget God's faithfulness in the past. That this is not just 
a, a new normal. It wasn't just a shadow that's cast over your spiritual past. That this is not just, you're not rewriting history, that it is true. And when I received my call into ministry, I remember the, my, my minister actually told me, he says, John, do two things. Write this down in a journal, exactly what happened. Because Satan will try to steal it away from you. And that is the law of undulation. And he said, the second thing is, is find a hook verse, a passage of scripture that when you feel that you are being led down to a lie, that you can say, uh-uh, no, because this is true, and this is the passage of Scripture that I'm going to rely on. And the last thing is, um, is that you commit that now that in these moments, God is real, even though everything around you and within you says otherwise. That says otherwise. So I think those are kind of the takeaways take from letters 8 and 9. Um, we are going to jump into letters uh, um, 12 and 13, correct? Yeah, there we'll, are, read, we'll read 10, 11, just read through yep, to 13. Yep. But we're going to focus on 12 and 13. You'll see back there as a handout, as kind of a brief overview of 12, some couple questions and for 12 and 13. Take a character study with you. If you have any questions, feel free to uh, write them down and you can drop them right where Logan is back there. You can just drop them off at uh, that booth and just we'll collect them and, and go from there. And we'll stick around for a few moments for some questions. Uh, but uh, so, you know, worship can start on time at 11. We'll go ahead and, and uh, have this closing prayer. Gracious God, we pray that, um, that whatever is from you, let it stick to our hearts, but whatever is not from you, let it fall to the ground and shatter. I pray, oh God, that even in the moments of, of uh, the troughs and the valleys of our spiritual life, and specifically what we were talking about today, that you will still allow us to see the glimpses of your grace and your presence. That in those moments, like the children of Israel going across the wilderness, you provided for them. Their clothes did not wear out. They didn't need to go buy new sandals or shoes. You were there in the midst. So let us, O oh God, lean into the steadfastness of who you are so that we may be able to persevere. All for your kingdom, all for your glory, we pray these things. Amen.